This episode is sponsored by Future, the site where you can make predictions on anything and bet with your friends. Head on over to futur.com now to bet on the prediction we posted about The Incredibles 2. Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! I'm back here with Ryan and Austin. What up, film fans? Yo. And today we're talking about the 2004 Pixar movie written and directed by Brad Bird, starring Craig T. Nelson and Holly Hunter, The Incredibles. So, let's, as always, get some first impressions. Let's start this time with Austin. What do you think about The Incredibles? So the first time I saw this movie actually was with my dad and stepmom. They're uh, pretty wholesome Christian folk. And they, you know, like these kinds of movies that have like nice family values and that are well constructed and blah, 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 blah. I don't know why I'm saying that like that's a bad thing. Of course, it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, Fucking wholesome family values. Yeah, how dare they? Um, but yeah. no, so that was the first time I saw it was with them. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I kind of was expecting it to be a stupid animated movie that, um, I don't know, wasn't really going to appeal to me and my my sensibilities. But it's it really did. It's really smart. It's really well crafted. Um, you know, I love that each of the protagonist characters all have some sort of story arc. Like even the baby has a story arc, you know, everyone has something to learn or something to gain or there's a, there's a struggle. Um, yeah, it's a great movie, man. I mean, it's really well done and, uh, I don't know. I, it's not as philosophically rich as I think some of the other films that we've talked about on this podcast. So it'll be interesting. Like even like a boss baby, I was able to go like on a deep dive, psychoanalytic Lacanian read. Whereas this one, I'm kind of like, uh, it's about like family and, you know, ability and discrimination maybe. I, I, I don't know. You know, we'll talk about that. Okay, cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Where would you, just real quick, where would you rank this in terms of other Pixar movies? Is it toward the, the top of your list, in the middle? It's one of the ones I forget, actually. Um, I think when I'm ranking my favorites, you know, I think of Up, I think of Inside Out. Um, and for some reason- The recent ones. Yeah, well, and like Toy Story- um, but for some reason, this one I forget as being in the pantheon of great Pixar films. But it is really, it should be. It should be up there. Okay, cool. Ryan? Well, um, Brad Bird's the fucking man, um, <laughs> first off. Um, at this point, I've seen this movie so many fucking times. So the first time I'd seen it, the, it this used to be my favorite Pixar movie. I mean, I really do like this movie a lot. Um, but I've seen it a lot. And uh, uh, so at this point, having seen it, you know... Now I'm kind of honestly a little sick of it, <laughs> to be perfectly frank. But mm-hmm. I still don't, you know, I acknowledge that it's a fucking awesome It just doesn't movie. do anything for you anymore. Yeah, it's kind of like I've, I've, I know what's going to happen. So no new epiphanies this time watching it? I mean, the I, I, I had a big epiphany when we made our Earthling Cinema episode on this, you know, a while ago. Because I kind of had not really thought about the whole, like kind of fucked up way you can take the message of this movie, you know, which Garrick's Wormula Lloyd uh, highlighted for us. Yeah, that was fun. Which is basically <laughs> like, you know, if it, you got to be born special or, you know, don't even try is essentially the uh, the me- the moral, right? You know? That, that, <laughs> well, that, we, yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. Yeah, so anyway, I, I, I um, this movie has a lot going on. I like it. Mm. Oh, and, and then in terms of favorite Pixar movies, I, at this point, I mean, I'm going to go Toy Story 1. Coco 2. Ooh. Wow. And then Toy Story 3, and then probably Inside Out, and then Incredibles. Okay, cool. Wow, okay. Well, yeah, Ryan, by the way, Ryan's always the guy who has a list in his head. You know, <laughs> I, I, I can never really make definitive choices on which is the which is better, which is worse. But yeah, I remember seeing this movie in high school, and I remember seeing it with my friends, and we all really enjoyed it. I think this was early on in the Pixar pantheon where I was first coming upon the realization that, oh yeah, these guys nail it pretty much every time. And I really liked the movie. It was super fun. I mean, I think that just the fact that it is a superhero movie and we get to see superhero actions scenes uh says a lot about how uh rewatchable this film is Mm. and um so i really liked it and then similar to ryan we did revisit this movie for an earthling cinema episode that i think is probably actually one of our best performing earthling cinema episodes that was a lot of fun because i'm actually very curious to see where this conversation leads us because i think that you can take it uh take the message in an interesting way that i don't necessarily think is a negative message to me it's actually a very 
refreshing and novel message. Um, but this time, um, some of the things that I actually did grow to appreciate it in a couple new ways this time. I think that this movie has a very interesting take on nostalgia, and I was able to kind of appreciate more of the ways that they creatively, not only in visual sense, but also in the script, are, are able to mix the kind of family dynamic tropes with superhero tropes. But uh, we could talk about that more. But yeah, I like this movie. I'd say it's probably in the middle of the Pixar pantheon for me. But having said that, that's only because the other the films at the top are just so good. Yeah, I mean, really, every um, Pixar film is. I mean, is there a bad one? Yeah, I mean, some of the well, there's like three Cars movies now. I haven't seen oh, yeah. the second two, but a lot of people don't like those. Brave was kind of eh. Yeah, Brave and Cars two are very meh. And then see, the I Good Dinosaur people, isn't, I, I, isn't that a Pixar movie? Yeah, but. That one was all right, though. I actually it didn't just, even see it. Uh, um, I would put Finding Dory in the super yeah. meh. Oh, yeah. yeah that, one got, that one got panned kind of universally, didn't it? And then Bugs Life kind of is on the, usually it's early, on the cutting yeah. room floor. I, I mean, I still to this day get that confused with Ants, which is the one starring Woody <laughs> Allen. <laughs> that's Ants. Oh, that's Ants. Okay. They came out at the same time. They came out at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And they look similar. One yeah. of them's blue, one of them's brown, but they both are Ants, right? Ants is way better. What's the yeah. one where it's like the Hornets are attacking them or invading them or isn't there something? Oh, that's ants. That's ants. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that one I like. Yeah. All right, before we get into the recap, I want to tell you guys what we are covering next week on the podcast. We're going to be covering the 2001 film Donnie Darko, written and directed by Richard Kelly. Note, we are not going to be doing the director's cut. We're going to be doing the theatrical version. All of us have seen the director's cut, so we'll be able to talk about the differences. But for the purpose of the podcast, we're going to do the theatrical cut. So there's going to be a link in the description of this podcast on where you can find it, how you can download it, how you can stream it. And uh, so please watch along with us in preparation for next week's podcast. Okay, cool. So let's roll into the recap. In a time when superheroes and supervillains walk the street, none are more powerful than heroic married couple Bob, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible, and Helen, a.k.a. Elastigirl. But when Mr. Incredible gets sued for saving a man from suicide, superheroes become outlawed, relegating the Incredible family to a stifling existence in the suburbs where they must hide their superpowers. One day, Bob receives a mysterious message from a woman named Mirage asking him to don the identity of Mr. Incredible once again to head to an island and defeat a robot gone amok. Mr. Incredible succeeds, and this return to form brings a new sense of vitality to his life. Mr. Incredible is called again on another mission, and it is revealed that his benefactor is actually an old disgruntled fanboy named Buddy, who has spent his entire life creating technology that gives him the power of a super, and now dons the name of Syndrome. Buddy captures Bob, but not before Bob uncovers Buddy's plan to terminate all the old supers and unleash a giant robot on a populated city, defeat it, and then bask in the glory of being the only super. So Helen and the kids, Dash and Violet, head to Syndrome's island to save Mr. Incredible. Syndrome apprehends them all and releases the robot on the city. Things go awry when the robot gets the upper hand and knocks Buddy out, leaving the city helpless to defend itself. Eventually, the Incredibles escape the island and, with the help of an old super friend, Frozone, defeat the robot. Syndrome kidnaps the youngest Incredible, Jack-Jack, but Jack-Jack retaliates, revealing his powers and getting Syndrome's cape caught in a plane's engine, killing him. In the end, another villain rears its ugly head, and the entire Incredibles family answers the call. End of movie. So the first thing I want to talk about is more to Ryan's point about how you could read this movie in a way that I wouldn't even necessarily call disturbing, but is definitely just contrary to the usual message that Hollywood uh, puts in its movies. And that is that in our Earthling Cinema episode, we kind of uh, related this to uh, Nietzsche and Herd mentality. Uh, which he writes about in Genealogy of Moralities, which is the idea that we live in a society based on Christian morality that demonizes the truly exceptional in favor of appease appeasing the mediocre masses. Mm. So, uh, and the reason why we're able to draw this is that a number of times throughout the film, we see the Incredibles family railing against a society that is constantly rewarding mediocrity, inhibiting the exceptional, and suggesting that everyone is special. So let me just read a couple quotes um, Mr. Incredible, when talking about Dash's graduation, he says, It's not a graduation. He's moving from the fourth grade to the fifth grade. It's psychotic. They keep on creating new ways to celebrate mediocrity, but if someone is truly exceptional, and then Helen cuts him off. Um, and then earlier in the movie, Dash is expressing grievances over not being able to try out for track, even though he's obviously the fastest one there since he has super speed. 
and uh, he's talking to his mom, and he says, you always say do your best, but you don't really mean it. Why can't I do the best I can do? And his mom answers. He says, right now, the world just wants us to fit in, and in order to fit in, we need to be just like everybody else. And then Mrs. Incredible says, everyone is special, Dash, and Dash says, which is just another way of saying no one is. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Um, <laughs> and, which is um, interesting ontologically, because, you know, some people would say- What do you ever, mean by ontologically? In terms Bring it of, back, buddy. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so in terms of like the nature of being, right? So when we make a statement mm-hmm. about reality of, of something that is, anytime you say something is something, you're speaking about like the nature, right? So ontologically, there are actually debates where people would say, you know, everything is political. And then other people say, well, if everything is political, then nothing is political. So if everything is special, then nothing is special, which means that- you know, uh, there has to be differentiation in order to make distinctions between things whatsoever. So there's some interesting stuff going on there in that sense. If everyone is special, then no one is special. But is that true? Or can everyone be special? Right. So, and then I kind of want to bring this, Buddy seems to suggest that hard work and dedication, that with hard work and dedication, a normal person can elevate themselves to greatness. You know, Buddy is a normie. You know, he spends his whole life, you know, utilizing his ingenuity, intelligence, and industriousness to create technology that gives him artificial superpowers. But in the end, this achieved greatness is proven false when Buddy is unable to destroy his own robot monster. Um, And, you know, throughout the film, um, we see, like, Elastigirl tells her daughter, Violet, he says, you know, when the time comes, don't think. You'll know what to do because it's in your blood. And this is very much a very contrarian position to we see media today, especially in our discussion on The Last Jedi, Ryan wasn't here for that, is that it switches it and creates a much more egalitarian message when it's revealed that Ray, spoilers if you haven't seen The Last Jedi, uh, <laughs> Ray is not the descendant of some noble blood or noble birth, but that anyone can be great, that, you know, there can be this cosmic chance that endows you with exceptional capabilities, whereas this movie is seeming to suggest that, no, blood is what makes you great, and for society to inhibit great people in favor of making everybody special or, to Austin's point, nobody being special, that's not good, or at least that's going to... um, you know, like, uh, that's another thing. I, I, I'm i curious, what do you guys think? I, I'm reading this film, and one of the things I think is interesting about it is that I think the idea of heroics is really just equated to, and I think Austin pointed this out, like capability. Mm. You know, it, early on in the movie, Helen says when they're getting married, he says, if we're going to make this work, you're going to need to be more than Mr. Incredible. But I guess my question is, the day is saved, you know, the characters get redemption, everything is saved based on the Incredibles being able to express their powers, not because they have some elevated adherence to a ideal of good, but it really is just that, you know, the Incredibles have it in their blood, Buddy doesn't. And yes, Buddy certainly is megalomaniacal, whereas uh, the Incredibles adhere to family values and are motivated by love, but that's not what allows them to succeed, I would argue. What allows them to succeed is just simply their power. Right. That they're born special. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, Ryan, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. What were you saying? I was just saying it's, uh, yeah, it's like a, the nature versus nurture debate, and, and the Incredibles are firmly on the side of nature, I assume. Yeah, I mean, right? did you guys ever see, or not see, read, I think it's a Kurt Vonnegut short story called, like, Henry Bergeron? Is that Harry Bergeron? I, fuck, I can't remember. I've but, not read that one. So it's about um, like this civilization where everybody is made equal. So if you are good looking, you like wear a mask. And if you're super strong, you have to wear weights on your body. So you're not faster or whatever than anybody else. And so everyone is, it's kind of like a monoculture, right? Everyone is homogenous. And um, and then at the end, he like, this one guy, he's like a young dude. He like breaks free of his shackles, so to speak, and like fucking flies and causes chaos. I don't remember all the all the details of it, but I'm pretty sure it's a Vonnegut short story. Um, but I, I think I remember the story and it kind of fits with, with The Incredibles as being interpreted as sort of um, like anti-totalitarian. So the totalitarian society is the one where everyone has to be the same, right? You hear this in debates against communism today, you know, especially in America, in the West, right? Where it's like, what, you want everyone to be equal and you want everyone to have uh, you know, equality of not opportunity, but equality of outcome and the results. That, yeah, that's yeah. that's a problem. And uh, and so you kind of see any sort of film that like 
or story or, or uh, I guess, narrative that um, valorizes being special or unique or having these supreme powers as as being something that is supposed to be in the Nietzschean sense, like this um, this idea towards freedom or greatness or something like that. But then other people would find that to, to be a bit, uh, to, to have an issue or to, to be a bit of an issue because then you're just basically saying that certain people are born special or certain people, you know, deserve better, better outcomes, even though maybe uh, other people didn't have the same opportunity. So you get into all of these weird sticky issues, but this film definitely, I, I can't see how it can be read in that weird way uh, in the sort of the, the, the anti-Nietzschean herd way. Yeah, I think it's kind of, um, to me, it's less saying like, you can't be great if you're if you're not born great, even though it kind of does say that a little bit. But I think it's more of like almost like a Ayn Rand objection, objection, yeah. objectivist uh, yeah, reading, where that. it's kind of like it's kind of like, look, greatness should be celebrated right. always. Like, right, right. like, like, like you should never have to hide the fact that you're great. Like th- those are the people that save the world, quote unquote. And and the fact that the Incredibles have to hide that, that's kind of I think what Brad Bird in the movie is saying, like. That's not good and that for society. So, uh, you know, I talked about The Last Jedi, and I, I guess I'm just very cynical in thinking that since this is a Disney property, so is Star Wars, so will this sequel. I think that in the sequel, this is going to change. I think that the message will change because this was, you know, almost yeah. 15 years ago where— you know, things weren't at the fever pitch of outrage that they are now and, you know, uh, overly politicizing everything. But I think that this message— Meta Jared's coming. <laughs> no, this is just a, a prediction. This oh, is a okay. prediction. And I don't know how you guys think about it, but I think that—I think the message is going to change. Do you think that this idea that society—it's for the good of society to let exceptional people be exceptional and— uh, do you think that that's going to be maintained in the sequel, or do you think they're going to backtrack and do a more egalitarian message like in The Last Jedi? I would be upset if they did, but I can see that. I can totally see that happening because I have the part, same cynical part of the brain that you do. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I can see like a like a char- like like one character all of a sudden rising up to the actual level of the, of the Incredibles. Yeah. Okay, guys, so before we move on, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. So by now, you probably know that we love to obsess over our favorite pop culture touchstones. And like any group of highly analytical nerds, one of our favorite pastimes is to make predictions about our favorite movies, TV shows, science, politics, etc. Like, will Marvel make a Care Bear-based action movie? Anyway, today's sponsor, Future, has taken that guessing concept and turned it into a massive social forecasting game that you have to see at futur.com. That's two U's. With Future, you and your friends can make predictions on things in a fun and competitive online setting. The odds and payouts change when more people start betting. It's super easy to understand and actually really fun. Will Amazon buy Nordstrom's? Will Trump make it through his whole term? I don't know, I'm not a psychic, but maybe you are, so go online and place your bets today. You can even suggest questions for other players to bet against, and again, we just set up a question about The Incredibles 2. We think that someone with no superpowers will be the hero of the next movie. So what's your take? Let us know what you think by going to futur.com or check the link in the description to place your bet. We'd also like to thank Tab for a Cause for sponsoring this podcast. Tab for a Cause is a browser extension that donates to charity each time you open a new tab. It doesn't cost you a thing, and you can do good while doing something you're going to do anyway, so it's a win-win. So just by browsing the web, tabbers have already raised more than $450,000 for charity through Tab for a Cause. And just think how many tabs you open a day, or at least I open a day. Uh, so let's keep that number growing. It's quick and easy to get started. Started, just head on over to tabforacause.org slash wisecrack to download the extension and start making your tabs count. All right. So I want to talk about Buddy. What do you guys think about Buddy? Do you think that he's evil? Because more to the way that we're reading this, I I don't know. Buddy to me is like, he's almost like a Captain Ahab character and the way he's like railing against the natural order <laughs> of the world. You know, we talked in our last podcast about Gattaca and how it's an affirmation of determination and will. This is the opposite, right? Because Buddy is the ultimately determined person. He's built this empire of technological achievement just so that he can be as great as his idol, Mr. Incredible. And now granted, yeah, he's probably mired in resentment and he, you know, it ultimately 
ultimately is Wait, you know, loses his humanity. What was that word you just said? As a classic French term, resentiment. Resentiment. <laughs> it's like uh, I'm I'm probably gonna butcher it, but it's it's similarly Nietzschean, a Nietzschean concept. It's basically just like a hatred of life, and that like okay. you um kind of your lot in life, I guess, is so horrendous to you that you live your life out of spite for existence almost, you okay. know, you're like, you, it's basically just the thing that drives you to be an antagonist or to antagonize life itself and the people around you. Um, please correct me if I oversimplified the shit out of it, Austin. No, that's fine, man. I mean, it, it has to do with a, a weak will as opposed to a strong will. And so you're a, a sort of reactionary as opposed to an active, uh, an active person. And, um, so Buddy would be, what Jared is, I think, intimating is that Buddy would be determined or overdetermined maybe by Rosentimont because he was jaded or spurned as a kid by his idol. So then his life is lived in pure, weak, reactionary revenge. And so, right. yeah, so that's kind of it. It's interesting. I I couldn't help but think of like Elon Musk or uh, or even Batman. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. He's like a, he's like a libertarian superhero. You know, mm -hmm. he's like, uh, he's the guy that can do anything just because of his ingenuity and because he knows some STEM skills or something yeah, like that. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Testament of will. That's right, man. He's fucking, he's Elon Musk, you know? And, uh, <laughs> but the funny thing is, is he's the villain. And so I wonder if that's saying, because everyone loves Elon Musk. There's like this cult of Muskness that is really strange right I'm now. In it. You know, it's like, are you? I mean, look, dude, I mean, he's he's obviously a, a, an intelligent human, but it's almost like anything he says or does, people automatically just brand as being right and beautiful and good because he has like street cred. Comes with uh, the territory. Yeah, well, look. Yeah, I mean, so, and, and, so there's like no criticism. And I think- I would that, say that, that yeah. anything that comes out of anybody's mouth that people uncritically accept as right is, and here we go, problematic. problematic. <laughs> <laughs> say it together. <laughs> um. But yeah, I think that, so I'm going to read a quote that is kind of connecting to what we were talking about earlier. So uh, Bob says, you mean you killed off the real heroes so that you could pretend to be one? Ooh. And uh, Buddy says, oh, I'm real, real enough to defeat you. And I did it without your precious gifts, your oh so special powers. I'll give them heroics. I'll give them the most spectacular heroics anyone's ever seen. And when I'm old and I've had my fun, I'll sell my invention so that everyone can be superheroes. Everyone can be super. And when everyone's super, no one will be. Ooh. I think that, yeah. So first of all, it's similar to like, you know, yeah, everyone's being special, therefore no one is. But I think that this can be, I think that more than most villains, especially most villains in Pixar movies, we can draw sympathy for Buddy. I think there's one element to his personality that complicates this and makes him decidedly an antagonist, but I, I don't want to get there quite yet. But he wants to make everybody equal. And that, to many people, would be a very noble effort, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting how he's cast as a villain in his desire to use his will, his technology, his industriousness to... But the movie kind of equates that, that pursuit with evil well it's funny because yeah he exactly he he it's kind of a charitable mission yet he's doing it for seemingly selfish reasons right so how are you supposed to take that <laughs> it's kind of like if you heard bill gates was giving all away all his money for some really you know selfish reason you're like well how you know thank you bill gates but also I, yeah i guess that would be my one criticism of this movie is that it doesn't really do enough to suggest that it's whether it's the family's uh, benevolent sense of unity or something like that or their sense of love that ultimately allows them to succeed. But, I mean, although that's there, it really is just like, a all right, there's a f problem in the family unit, and by the end, the problem within the family unit is resolved, but it's very much a very relatable uh, domestic issues about, you know, uh, midlife crises and stuff like that and saying, you know, uh, I didn't, appreciate you wife as much as possible whereas but but that doesn't ultimately allow them to succeed it is their powers that allow them to succeed and i guess i mean i'm fine with the message once again like today when it seems like most movies have to say one thing you know and that's usually more the egalitarian message i find it a breath of fresh air that there's a movie out there that people love and that it seems to say something different i i mean i'm, I'm down with that what's well, kind of super superman movies like superman movies they don't try to make everyone equal. It's totally cool that there's just one dude who's like a Jesus figure, you know? Like, it's just cool that he 
is fine. No one, there's no, no one's ever jealous or like, there's no, I mean, there's power struggles, obviously, but no one has ever like, or the message of the films, at least from what I can remember, it's never like, man, that's just unfair that, uh, that Superman has all these powers, you know, <laughs> those films seem to just celebrate the uniqueness right. of, of his, right. uh, of his well, abilities. But, th but that's the interesting thing. Yeah. By painting Superman as a Christ figure, you know, it's almost okay to say that message because you're likening him to the divine and, right. you know, like the, this sense of a divine father figure is something that we all accept that, you know, plays a proper practical application in our lives. But, you know, having your neighbor, just someone next to you having these kind of godlike powers, that's not okay because then, you know, we build a society in which there are better thans and less thans. Well, th two mm. points. One, uh, let's not forget that Buddy was trying to do his charitable mis mission by murdering superheroes. So he is a murderer. That's true. You know, uh, or attempted at least. And then also the, your point, Austin, about Superman, you know, no one caring about his superpowers. That's not true. They, I mean, if you think about like Batman versus Superman, they have a whole freaking uh, oh, yeah. thing on Washington where they're like, like you know, this guy's too powerful. We need, to, you know, he's basically like a nuclear weapon, and we we gotta regulate him. So it's almost uh, kind of the same thing as the Incredibles here. Same thing as in, in the in the Avengers too, if I remember, right? Where it's just mm. like, who's gonna watch the Watchmen? Kind of, uh, who's gonna regulate the superheroes deal? Right, and that's kind of a common theme in the superhero genre or right. in any sort of genre where there's someone who has special powers. The person, like even with Batman, right? Like Except obviously here they it's got different. sued, which is I guess the one <laughs> they get sued, yeah. Well, more, more yeah, to the libertarian thing, I think that it's interesting that first of all, yeah, the antagonist is bureaucracy. Red tape, uh, you yeah. know, like the fact that the law can even, the law is so confounded and so powerful that even, you know, the, the this messy overdone bureaucratic system can even take down superheroes. I think that, and not only that, but... Which I think is a beautiful message and <laughs> totally real life and true. Right. <laughs> but not only that, but once the bureaucracy does kind of obliterate the superhero way of life, Bob is he's a claims adjuster and I love how in the <laughs> yeah. scene, in, in the scenes when he's a claims adjuster, like it's almost like he's relegated to be a villain and then once again, he's stuck in. Although I guess this wouldn't be kind of like an anti-libertarian message if we were to say that, okay, so now Bob is stuck in a system that uh, is inherently evil. And what I was going to say is I love the drab colors, totally muted colors for all the scenes in which Bob is working <laughs> at his yeah. at his job. Well, the as libertarians would say it's, to it's inherently evil. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's oh, why I'm oh. saying like the, the libertarian thing doesn't exactly work because – Although, yeah, we can criticize the bureaucratic element of the legal system. However, the kind of free market nature of uh, insurance is bad. Yeah, well, the free market, yeah, says that that crying old woman at the beginning, you know, should suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. That sounds, like a that sounds like a club I want to be a part of, this suck it up old lady club. Hey, Jesus. Not everyone, you know. <laughs> and, you wonder, and people wonder why people have problems with Ayn Rand and shit like that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, wait, why didn't that lady pay her fucking bill, goddammit? <laughs> you don't we'll know, never know, man. <laughs> Cancer, uh, her dog died. It's like just think of a country song that went wrong. That's that's what happened. But that's just pure speculation. We I don't know. we don't know. Crime yeah. River. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's um I mean, any film that gets made in Hollywood, I think, is subject to uh, a reading, like a particular critical reading of capitalism and of uh of liberal values and of issues of the individual just because they're all being expressed within that 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 matrix right so it's not like Brad Bird was sitting down with the writers and was like all right we're going to make a film that's going to be an expression of western capitalism but it will do that because it's a manifestation of it because it's uh, an unconscious product if you will of that worldview so i think that there is a a critical reading of this film where you could look at it and say look i mean the dude has these unique special abilities uh, let's say he's not a superhero what if he's an artist uh, and uh, the culture doesn't accept him, um, so doesn't accept his art, his ability, his his talent, whatever it is that he can provide, his service to the world. It's not acceptable, so he has to live in this drab cubicle community, and that that's what capitalism does, is it stifles creativity. As much as it tries to say that it stimulates individualism, it does so, but only within 
the purposes of furthering or of expanding capital, right? Increasing capital. That's the point is to increase profit, which then gets reinvested, to increase profit, that gets reinvested ad, ad infinitum. So then then that's kind of a way that you could look at this film is so then what he has to do is he has to break free. And this would be the then Nietzschean, sort of weird Nietzschean anti-capitalist reading of it would be that he has to break free from that and pursue his art or pursue his the thing that makes him happy that uh, will allow him and his family and his marriage to survive and flourish. And it has to be breaking free from corporate America. So I think that that reading could come out of that. That's obviously me yeah, introjecting I, I, a lot I mean, of stuff. But, like, but. So we've talked about Zizek, uh, Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Zizek, a couple times in this podcast. And uh, something he talks about, I don't know if you've heard this term, Austin, like Hollywood Marxism, the, the idea that Hollywood will, you know, suggest that the that in these stories, it'll be like The Last Jedi, where, you know, equality is better, or that, uh, you know, like in Titanic, the aristocrats are the evil ones, whereas uh, there's mm. this vitality of working class life on the lower ends of the deck. Um, and I very cynically, I guess you could say I have a very libertarian reading as to why this is, why it is that so many Hollywood movies want to purvey this inclusive uh, egalitarian message, and it has nothing to do with them thinking that that's the right thing to do. It has to, the, it has to do with the fact that uh, no matter what the movie is, the ticket sale is one price. You know, it's <laughs> it's not like, you know, oh, I want to go see Moonlight. That's a great movie. That ticket is $20, but, you know, Transformers is only $10. No, it's all one price. So in mm. order for a movie to make money, you have to sell as many tickets as possible and, you know, uh, basically selling the masses you know, the plight of their lives, you know, saying that like, you know, because it, it just, it works more, it's not like um, a Bugatti or something like that where you can have a market based on selling high quality products that are very expensive to a select group of people. No, you have to appeal to as many as possible. Therefore, you are going to uh, inundate your movie with a message that is going to resonate with them. And so if you're trying to attract a million poor people as opposed to, you know, a thousand rich people, you're going to tell them what they want to hear. See, I, 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 I would, I mean, I get your point, but I would say it's more of a storytelling thing than anything. It's like, it's, that's why, you know. Yeah, but why do those storytelling methods resonate more be, than because others? Because the underdog rules stories. You know, the underdog is the hero's journey. It's like, it's like, so the, the, whoever's on top, whoever's the power, no matter how noble or, or moral they are, it's like they are the, the ones to be overcome. And then the people that don't have anything are, aren't. That's just like through stories through the, throughout time. And so it just makes, you know, it's just an easier thing to, re, to relate to, to wrap your head around. You know, yeah, if like your protagonist is some, you know, rich person, if, if your protagonist is the boss of the company, you know, that's like, I don't know, it's just not as compelling of a story. So I think that it's as simple right, as that. Right, but if they came out, imagine if they came out with a movie that was like a movie marketed only to CEOs, but it cost $1,000 a ticket. <laughs> um, you know, like if, if that was a viable business model, I just think that Hollywood would do that. It's, I, I just very cynically believe that. I don't oh, think dude, this, I don't think the movie would be good because the story even the CEOs wouldn't like it. They would, you know. I mean, I, you could oh, say so, well, uh, you could say Wolf of Wall Street is kind of well, no. Because, I mean, that has like an irony to it and like a, a, okay. a critical lens to it, perhaps. So we we kind of already discussed that. But anyway, bringing this back to the movie, uh, The Incredibles. Why do so? so okay. But the underdog doesn't win in this movie. You could argue the That's underdog is That's why this movie buddy. is cool. This, I mean, this movie so it has, breaks the mold. So the underdog— It, it, does, it, 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 it is a conservative film. I, I do feel—I feel like Brad Bird has—you know, I don't know his politics really, but I feel like it. it, it is like— you know, he's he's railing against uh, fucking, what do you call it, uh, participation trophies and shit, it seems. You know, he's mm -hmm. one of those people. Right, right, right? It's right. like It's like, like he wants to celebrate— Greatness, you know, and that right. and and yeah. and so he like like even though the boss is an asshole and even though, yeah, he, he's stuck in this capitalism capitalist system, I feel like like he's still being a good person inside the system or trying to be. He's trying to be with the small superhero he can at the beginning when he's helping the old woman out. I mean, I was joking earlier about being callous to the old woman, but I, I, I feel like Mr. Incredible's point of view is I don't I don't fault my boss for being a boss and being having power over me and stuff in this. It's just that he's an asshole, you know, and he lets capitalism and greed and stuff affect his personality. I don't, you know what I mean? Even though uh, I'm obviously an underling to him. So Yeah, maybe maybe there's another way to look at it too and say that 
that the film could have potentially had like a more revolutionary bent, like Jared was talking about with The Last Jedi and potentially with the sequel, uh, what it what it could do with, you know, kind of giving a, a non-super a, a central role or something like that. Like maybe the non-super will come in and, and save the day or become a part of The Incredibles. And then the moral will be that everybody's an incredible or something like that. Right. But, uh, in this film, Buddy had a chance to be the revolutionary figure, right? He's the one that's like, no, I am going to serve my community and I'm going to do something for the greater good of everybody. I'm going to make it so so that, that there is no such thing as a disability, right? That we all have the same abilities as the supers even just by using the skills of technology and engineering and things like that. But they couldn't let that happen. So they had to turn that ambition, that quote unquote communist lefty ambition, they had to turn that into something <laughs> evil, right? Where like, how dare you yeah. want to make everybody equal? If you make everybody equal, then nobody's special and you're just an evil villain. So he's like, you know, it's like... Uh, the revolutionary Che Guevara turns into uh, the asshole villain, you know? Yeah, and so two things. One, I think back to my criticism about, and once again, I love this movie, but I think one thing that could have potentially avoided this thing we're talking about, so there's a part where Mirage, who's the very skinny lady, uh, Buddy calls Mr. Incredible weak uh, for some reason or another, and then Mirage says, he's not weak, you know, valuing life is not weakness, and disregarding it is not strength. So she says that to Buddy, and yeah, we're meant to believe that Buddy, uh, I guess, is, you know, doesn't value life, and perhaps that's what makes him weak, but ultimately, Buddy is defeated, not because he doesn't value life, but because he just sucks at being a superhero. Right. Know? Yeah, right. and, and, and just, so, like, the, the, Right, he's just a, well, yeah, and well, no, but, like, he's a dick, but he still would have won if he just, you know, didn't fuck up fighting the robot. You know, he just sucked at mm. being a superhero. And, and so don't I, you think what that, I, that he fucked up, don't you think that the fact that the film is saying that the fact that he's not as good of a superhero is because he lacks the moral fiber of the family? I don't think that that's evident in the text, no, is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, I think, like, that I, think that, I think that we can believe that, and I think that, you know— probably someone who's less critical than we are not to say that i'm right i just don't think there's a lot of justification for that in the text no yeah mm. i think it's more of the genes argument at the like in that moment when he fucks up mm. with it's the, really the interesting remote. too because this is actually a really hot topic and we don't need to go too far down this rabbit hole it's quite a um uh, a tense uh polarizing figure that uh that we could talk about in another context but jordan peterson's new book that is like a bestseller he has this chapter on lobsters where, you know, he's he's talking about how in you can look at nature and we can see that lobsters form themselves in hierarchies. And, uh, you know, people are, this is a really hot topic nowadays. Like, like should there should there be equality of outcome? You know, is everybody equal? And what do you do with difference? And I think one of the problems with these types of debates is that um, it, it takes place at different levels, but people aren't always good at distinguishing these different levels. And what I mean is, is that, so again, I'm using the word ontologically. At the, at the level of being, um, the, the sort of communist or leftist or progressive perspective isn't typically saying that there is no such thing as difference and that there aren't hierarchies. But the issue then is that there's a difference between ontology, which might be that, okay, yeah, there are people who are stronger than others. There are people who are faster than others. There are people who have better senses of smell or better eyesight, you know, whatever. That's not the point. The point is that a social or political level, how does the ontological stratification map you know, and then how are we supposed to deal with those variations and things like that? But we're just not good at having these types of discussions, which is why I think this film is is so interesting because, like you said, I mean, and I didn't really think about it from this angle when I was watching it, but now it's like resonating with me like crazy. And now I'm looking back and playing the film in my mind through this prism is that it really is kind of doing something totally different than what we're usually spoon fed in mass media, which is that idea that, no, you can be a hero too. I picked this movie because I thought you were going to say it was problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, and it I, didn't happen. <laughs> no, no, I'm trying to uh, expand my vocabulary a little bit no, for you I'm guys. I'm just fucking with you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I think that's totally on point. It's why I think it's really interesting. Um, so one other thing I wanted to say about Buddy, one of the things I find very interesting is very subtly is, is the fact that he's a fanboy. You know, it's not mm. just that he's a mm. dude. He's a mega fan. And there are some... Very subtle moments, and I hate using the word, like, toxic whatever, but, like, I, I remember, especially, <laughs> especially in um, this newest season of Black Mirror, there's that USS McAllister episode. Did you guys see that? Which one's that one? That's the one with the Star Trek. No, I didn't see it. Oh, yeah, that's the, the first one. 
the first, first one, one of the new season. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, hot takes on that movie about it being about toxic fandom. And I think that you can say a lot about Buddy in that same way. One of the things that really <laughs> resonated with me is that uh, when Buddy realizes that uh, when, when he has all the family together and he's got them all stuck in his zero point technology, he says, whoa, you married Elastigirl and you guys got busy re- referring to the kids. <laughs> you can almost see him like with his action figures going like, oh my God, you know, like th- this is like, this is like such a breakthrough in superhero lore. <laughs> yeah. You know, the fact that, that Mr. Incredible married Elastigirl and they fucked and had kids. <laughs> oh my God. This is like my fan fiction has come true. <laughs> um, it's like he's going home and playing house with them, right? Like he's going to play with right, his dolls exactly. and marry them and they get to move into the same base together and fight crimes. Yeah, it's It's like misery. Yeah, and there's also this (laughs) element that Buddy, he feels, um, Buddy feels like Mr. Incredible is obligated to owe him something. And I think that, you know, I'm bringing it back to The Last Jedi, but we see that with fan cultures, that Ryan Johnson owes something to the fans. You know, he owes it to us to give us what we want. And, uh, you know, some people would call that toxic fan culture. I try as hard as I can not to use that term. But I think that there is something interesting going on here with that characterization of Buddy. And that's one of the elements, I think, that makes him an antagonist. Mm, Yeah, I think this is one of the problems with a market-driven culture in general, though, is that... um, so let's start with Star Wars and then we can kind of move it back to the Incredibles. But like with Star Wars, like we talked about in our episode too, is is if Ryan Johnson is crafting a film, does he actually, is he obliged to to meet the audience's expectations? And in a sense, yeah, because in a, in a sense, you've got to put butts in the seats. So you've got to do enough of it, obviously, to get people there. So that means that there's like an external compulsion that is the demands of the market that are restricting and constraining any piece of art. And similarly, in social relations, then you get with Buddy and this superhero, is that Buddy then sort of views the superhero, Mr. Incredible, as a commodity. And uh, and that, 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 he, that what's owed to him is like a return on his investment. He's invested in them uh, libidinally, emotionally, you know, spiritually, you know? I mean, it's like this religious thing. And he expects a return on investment because that's what that's what a market-driven society produces is it is it constructs individuals who behave in that capacity and so um <laughs> so basically yeah. ryan johnson the market ryan, ryan johnson you better watch exactly. the fuck out because your your fan your disgruntled fans i mean that rage is just going to keep on brewing and they're going to grow up to be like syndrome and they're going to kidnap you and say why didn't you make Luke Ray's father <laughs> so uh, watch Dude, out isn't, aren't there aren't there movies where that actually has happened like uh God, oh, i feel fuck. like a I guarantee you, like people listening will be able to think about this, but for some reason there, I feel like I've seen that before, you know, where it's like, you didn't make this movie the way I wanted to, or well, like, like misery, right? Uh, isn't yes, yes, yeah. Stephen, Stephen King's misery and, uh, yeah. uh, well, she keeps the author captive because he fucked up the story, right? You know, like I mean, she can, reads I can his imagine manuscript a Game of Thrones and you killed the fan. character. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I can imagine a Game of Thrones fan doing that. You know, oh, yeah. can you imagine? No wonder like, George R. R. Martin doesn't want to finish the fucking books. He'd rather die first. <laughs> there's this awesome, yeah. I, I, there's this good movie called The Fan with Robert De Niro and uh, That's Wesley what I was Snipes. Thinking. That's yeah. what I was thinking. It's like a baseball, yeah. same thing with the, a baseball. Um, but but I would say, you know, to, to your point about the market, you know, market-driven society creates these people. I mean, I, to me, the film was just saying, there are people like Buddy, don't be like Buddy. You know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As opposed to see what society produces, well, it's buddies. I think we can, uh, I, I don't this think it has can't to be quite black and white. Though. It can be look what society produces and like, you know, if we see that a market-driven society does lead to this, we can be critical about it and adjust. But I'm not saying that we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater okay. and say we shouldn't have a market-driven society because it produces this. No, we can have a market-driven uh, society recognize that this is one of the challenges that comes with that and then, yeah. you know, have this conversation you can become, and adjust. You can become like this if you let this shit go to your head. Right. Whereas I am saying that we shouldn't have a market-driven system. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about it's all, wisecrack. Is all about different viewpoints and mutual yes. respect. Exactly. No, I think I think. Touche. Um, uh, yeah. Um, um, I'm kind of joking when I say that. I'm half joking because uh, <laughs> there are actually there are actually a lot of like uh, communist, post-communist, post-Marxist, anarchist literature uh, and thinkers and ideas that um, utilize 
the market. So especially today, there's um there's a movement called accelerationism that is a that is a branch of uh, sort of Marxism, post-Marxism, and it is very willing to to use the tools of the market and and things like that to sort of overcome, if you will, the ills of capitalism to issue better social. Um, arrangements, but that's that's you know a deeper dive. But um, I do think that there is something interesting in rather than saying like like that this film is you know saying that there shouldn't be a market or that market people are bad people. I do think that instead of making such absolutes, what we could say is that there is a particular disposition or like a market type of logic that is essentially structured in a particular way, and it has certain tendencies. Like essentially, like it it just essentially has certain tendencies. And that one of the tendencies is, is that it makes Mr. Incredible fucking miserable because he has to have this shitty job because um, that's how you have to make a living. And then it puts tension and strain on his family. And then that's an issue that we're dealing with right now. You know, I mean, they talk about, what is it, Gen Xers are the dudes, like white men are killing themselves at crazy rates. People are doping and uh, there's an opioid crisis and um, people are all on, on, on SSRIs. And so there's, uh, there are problems. And a lot of people would say, you know, certain cultural critics would say that this is because there is a certain intrinsic destructive tendency in the market logic. Not that markets as such are, are problematic, um, because markets have existed before the existence of capitalism. We can't conflate the two, but that maybe there's something about a pure market driven logic that inflects our social arrangements in negative ways. It can, so, I would say. Yeah, it, it could. Yeah. Nothing you, is perfect. Yeah, I mean, I uh, like I love markets, but also, you know, I lived in a co-op, communal co-op for like three years. I fucking love ca- communism when I can choose to be in it. You know what I mean? It's not that libertarians don't care about the community. They actually care about it a lot. It's just that they don't want government enforced caring for their community, if that makes any sense. Yeah, David Graeber, David Graeber calls it everyday communism. He says where it's like when you're at a dinner table with your family and you say, can you pass the salt? You know, that's like a communist action because you're not saying pass the salt and I'm going to charge you for it or you owe me later. Um, obviously, he says that there are debt relations that or are pass the salt or I'll that. put you in prison if you don't. <laughs> right, right. Straight right. to the gulag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but like you see that even uh, in, in all kinds of things that like everyday family relations, you know, like that, that, that is kind of communal. Um, but you have to live through capitalism to get to that. So, well, I'd actually like to, yeah, yeah, sorry. I was sorry. I actually wanted to transition the conversation to talk about nostalgia. I feel like this movie has a very interesting take on nostalgia that once again, we don't see in a lot of Hollywood movies. I feel like this day, nostalgia is almost a dirty word, especially in the age of Trump. Uh, Mm. most entertainment, you know, we see it in South Park with the member berries. Most people treat nostalgia as kind of like, they equate it with regression. Um, even if you take a movie like The Godfather, the uh, there is a desire for going back in the old times that we have this nihilistic new age that, uh, you know, the old values of the mob can't deal with, you know, and then there's, uh, you know, like new drugs and stuff like that. No country for old men. You're probably right. I just haven't oh, seen uh, it in no, a while. I'm sorry. No, no, okay. Uh, but this movie, we see that Bob wants to relive the glory days, which is also something that we've talked about in this podcast with Wolf of Wall Street. And interestingly... We start the movie at the beginning where supers are saving the world, everything's all good, but then the bureau- the bureaucrats get in the way, ruin everything, then Bob's life sucks, you know, he's living this really shitty suburban existence, and then at the end, I guess we're meant to believe, although the trailer for the sequel kind of complicates this, things go back to the sat- status quo at the end. They are able to reveal their powers. They're able to be Elastigirl and be Mr. Incredible again. It gives new vitality to their marriage. And Wait, I thought they interestingly, don't reveal their powers. Oh, they don't reveal it to the world, but they're, I'm sorry, they're able to express their powers. Interestingly, I don't know if you guys, so I didn't remember this, but at the end, after they defeat the robot and after this town is saved, we see these two old man characters that say, did you see that? That's the way to do it. That's old school. Yep, no school like the old school, just like (laughs) old times, just like old times. And it's interesting that in a sense there is a um, salvation is achieved by going back to the way things were, the the way things were in like the 50s and 60s, back when it was, you know, the glory days of Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible. How often do we see that in movies? Usually it's like, no, we must not go back to those times. Actually, most of the times these days, you can't even talk about the glory days of the 50s and 60s without equating it with some, you know, uh, with some other social ill, like, like race relations and stuff like that. So I do find it interesting that this is the only movie I can think of in which 
nostalgia is affirmed in a very positive way. Hmm. Yeah. Galaxy Quest. That is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm trying to yeah. think through films, right? I mean, there, I mean, I'm sure there are other films that talk about or that valorize nostalgia, but you're right. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, but there is something interesting. I think that, um, I think, I think there is an issue with nostalgia that, that doesn't often get discussed because, you know, yeah, usually it's, it's like, well, you don't want to go back to the fifties because there was radical gender inequality and, you know, race relations were sour and things like that. So you don't ever want to go back, you know, progress is the kind of idea. You got to keep going forward, keep going forward. But there's another issue with, with nostalgia that I think is, that is problematic. Um, uh, that is that um <laughs> that is that um that when you use an image this like static inert image to mediate your social relations to determine your consciousness to determine your linguistic framework when you use those images and and we can't get away from that we always do it but when you encamp yourself in that type of social life um it really restricts what you're able to do and so, and so if your social relations are overdetermined by these inert, fixed, static images, it produces, um, it produces a, a, a phenomenon that Sartre would call seriality. And I think what that is, is it, it creates an alienating social structure. So, um, it does have some issues and we can get into why, but I mean, it's kind of technical, but I, I just, I, I do think that if, if we're not living in the now, it sounds so fucking cheesy, but if you're not living um, or if you're, if you're allowing yourself to be overdetermined by these static inert images of the past, then what that does is that really restricts the potential for what you can create and what you can do in the moment is really what I'm trying to say. But can we not say that there are things in the past that are worth revisiting and that, you know, it's possible for us to move forward and then take one step forward and two steps back and be in a better place, right? Like, I mean, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, it's impossible to not have images mediate our social reality. It, that, that's, it, it's impossible to not have them. The question is, is what is the influence that they have over our social relations? Do they overdetermine? So if you just simply encamp in nostalgia, then you would probably be a very strange individual. And your social relations, like, could you imagine an entire society that was just oversaturated by nostalgia? That would, that would probably be a really weird, a really weird, weird world. I kind of feel like we're there, but <laughs> well, uh, for, for me, uh, nostalgia is like not a bad thing at all. And like thinking, you know, feeling fond for the past is a pretty human emotion. But like it's it, the, where it gets weird is that when there's this whole kind of like, quote unquote, nostalgia industry now, you know, where it's mm -hmm. like literally it's marketed to you and like everything is recycled yeah. as remember that oh fruit roll ups are back out we literally have fruit roll ups remember the 90s the, we have fruit roll ups in the office and everyone's like wow remember oh yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, 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 I'm actually guilty of that yeah exactly you know so I mean, that in, kind in of thing sense, where it literally media. takes to, to, yeah. when the when nostalgia is everywhere to where we're not making new culture where it's just like where it's that much then then that I think that's a bad thing but I think that yeah. just being fond for men we should do that again for the, you know, cherry picking things from the past. And, and that's a, that's, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Right. And you know, it's just refreshing to have a movie that's willing to say that, uh, some people are born better than other people. And sometimes, uh, going back <laughs> to the glory days is a good thing. You know, I, it's just amazing <laughs> that we have a Disney movie that says that it's incredible. That costs a hundred million incredible. dollars to make. Incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. See, there's meta Jared right there's there. There's meta Jared. Incredible. <laughs> Um, it is it is interesting though that there aren't many movies that would that would be brave enough to kind of tackle this this position. You are absolutely right. I mean, I'm trying to think of even another movie that would have this big of an appeal and this big of a, a public reception that would not give you that everyone is special. You know, um, you too can become a superhero or you too can become president. Sort of moral. And this film is kind of like, no, nah, it's, yeah. it's not what's going on. That's not it. <laughs> I, one thing I want to mention, we're actually running low on time. Uh, I had a lot more to talk about. God, this kind of flew by. But uh, one of the things I really like about this movie is, uh, and I think this is one of the greatest things that Pixar is, is kind of their visual ingenuity and their conceptual ingenuity and when they will take... Uh, so, you know, when mom is a boat and Dash is the peddler, um, we see Violet creates mm. a force field and Dash is inside rolling it like a ball. So there's the visual element. But I also love how, you know, the, the some of the, the two big thematic things, things here is we have the family unit and heroics and that whole final confrontation with the robot is uh, really awesome. So when 
because it, it mixes the two. So, for example, there's like a car chase where Mr. and Mrs. Incredible are driving and they're arguing about directions while on a superhero car chase, which is, which is something that a wife and a husband will classically do. Or when they find Syndrome's remote and they're trying to figure out how it works, you know, what family hasn't had, you know, their old parents trying to figure out how the fuck do we work this TV remote? Um, I have. Yeah, all of us has. Um, I also like how in Elastigirl's big hips are, are kind of like one of the things that allows her to defeat some of the bad guys when she's infiltrating Syndrome's lair. Um, I, I just love how just through the action, they're able to not only through the script and the dialogue, but through the action, they're able to conflate and develop these two themes. And I, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you got to give pretty much all credit to Brad Bird. I'm he's gonna, the man. He's he, because and Mission Impossible Four is the best one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. agree. <laughs> There's a YouTube video. I think it's every frame a painting maybe did on Brad Bird, which I don't know if people are familiar with the with with the YouTube channel Every Frame a Painting or Every Frame a Picture. I think it's Every Frame a Painting. It, it's yeah, um, you're right. Yeah, and uh, I, I think the guy actually just announced that he's not going to be making the videos anymore, which is really sad. It's but he, he did one on Brad Bird that is really fucking cool, and he talks about The Incredibles and some of the stuff, the the directorial choices that he uses in the medium of animation that is really lovely. So I would I would recommend checking that if, one out. If you're not familiar with Brad, Brad Bird's filmography he he started as like a guy on the simpsons so he and some of the, the best work on the simpsons and then he did uh iron giant which was a huge flop and then uh uh and then he moved on to pretty late in life uh kind of him and john Lasseter hooked up and then he made this and then ratatouille cool well let's move into the mailbag um this is from Max. He said, hey, Wisecrack, one thing I noticed about Gattaca is that it's very similar to Vertigo, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Both involve romances with a person that changes identity. Jerome slash Vincent and Carlota slash Madeline slash Judy. Those multiple identities are uncovered. I'm reminded of the end of Anton's investigation and Scotty's interaction with Judy and Madeline's death. Uh, basically, when I got this, I just wanted to say, Max, I agree with you. I kind of hadn't thought that, but there's, you know, there's the whole... Exactly, switching uh, personalities uh, thing, running through both, mm. and they, they're very similar. And I love Vertigo, and if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's awesome. Yeah, another film that I'd love to do for this podcast that also borrows a lot from Vertigo is Takashi Miike's Audition. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, and, and Vertigo, in, in general, seems to be a favorite of—it's like a filmmaker's film. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of filmmakers do draw upon various things from Vertigo, mostly because the the, the creation of it and, this, and the uh, the cinematics of it are so dense. But And it's just so juicy of a, of a premise. It is. And uh, Takashi Miike's film is similarly— it's interesting how Vertigo is stylistically split down the middle. Yeah. Once you find out that there's, you know, this spoiler for Vertigo. Uh, yeah. Once you realize that there is a, I'll just say a vague conspiracy going on, the film changes colors. It changes the direction that the camera moves. And similarly, mm. in Takashi Miike's audition, when you similarly find out that there is a conspiracy or a switch in identity, it also starts breaking the 180 degree rule. It starts getting with a lot of jump cuts. And so I think that, you know, if we ever kind of broaden the format of this, I think we can do a whole episode on films that evoke, Gata I'm not Gattaca, Vertigo. <laughs> yeah, into it. Yeah. So I've got another email. This is from Casper. He says, uh, big fan, love that you guys, they say nothing is too cerebral or too uncultured to be unworthy of discussion at Wisecrack, which is definitely laudable. Thank you, Casper. He says, the reason I'm writing is after being a silent listener uh, for so long is that I listened to your Mean Girls episode and it prompted me to watch the film. While I really liked it, I was flabbergasted at your superficial criticism of the portrayal of Africa in the film, which flies completely off the hinges as Austin makes the conclusion that Africa equates to wild while American high school equates to civilized. This is the opposite of the point of the metaphor in Mean Girls, which is that the American high school is exactly as feral as the African savanna. This is why students are portrayed as apes as they fight, jungle drums play during conflict, and even why we cut back to Caddy's first boyfriend, reversing the metaphor to show a decidedly relatable situation where Caddy is turned down by her African crush. Um, I share Jared's view of the inanity of the word, word, word problematic and his stance that inability <laughs> to be offended is virtuous. But more than that, I abhor the tendency to seek out and criticize cultural antagonism where there is none. To the extent that Mean Girls even has a cultural motif, it's that despite the trappings of civilization, American social life is still fundamentally raw and animalistic, i.e. no different than apes fighting. As such, if the film is guilty of cultural ineptitude, it is in being relativist, i.e. comparing the Western world 
girl world to the African wild without nuanced acknowledgement of their actual descriptive differences. Not, as Austin concludes, the opposite, i.e. claiming the Western exceptionalism and African wildness vis-a-vis American civilization. Oh, he talks about Zizek. He says, in the words of Zizek, cultural stereotypes, when used right, can express a space of shared solidarity rather than racism. Uh, Thanks for all your great content. Also to you, Austin. Hope you don't find this point of contention to be a criticism of what you contribute to the show in general, as I really value what your obvious knowledge of philosophy adds to the discussion. This is from Casper, who is a political advisor for the Danish parliament. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. So, I mean, look, this is— I love it. I, I wanted to bring this up because uh, this is something that's very dear to me. Like, I, I this is yeah. something I, I totally believe in, and I believe that, you know, I, I think that it's virtuous to look at things in a perspective that will not divide us and that will not bring about, um, you know, uh, points of offense. And I, I, I felt a very similar frustration with the discussion of Mean Girls because I felt like, you know, it's almost as if there is— like this, it's backwards. It's like there's a virtue of like finding out how can I be offended and make a point about how this, you know, uh, contributes to unfair power dynamics in the world. And I feel like mm. that's a very bad thing to do. And mm. I think, and, and um, but, you know, once again, if you disagree, Austin, like this is not, you know, like the Jared fascist podcast. So I want everyone to be able to express themselves. But, um, you know, like I'm just curious as to what you think about that. Well, fuck you, Jared. Um, so, no. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, to Casper, I'm absolutely not offended at all. I, I am a professional philosopher. Um, I mean, and like literally, that's what I am. And so um, I love going to conferences and I love being around individuals who can challenge me on things. And um, I, I always say, you know, like people say, are you a this or are you a that? Or do you believe X or do you believe Y? And my answer is sometimes... Sometimes I am. Ask me again in five years. I change so much, and I'm so fluid with with things that it obvious it, it can sometimes come across as noncommittal. But it's because I really am open to explore, and that's just kind of my disposition. So I think that's interesting. The only thing I'd say in response is that I'm not sure, and I'm not sure how strongly I would say that I was trying to to make a pure, clean bifurcation between like the wild of Africa and the civility of high school. But what I would say is I think that. That there is something interesting in the film trying to say that that underneath human nature that there is a wildness there but that it's it's disciplined out of us in the west through education so um you know this is what claire was talking about with foucault and the idea of docile bodies that people are trained to be they're educated and when you are educated then you become disciplined uh, to perform certain functions, to behave under certain conditions, to act a certain way. But what the film is saying then is, is that, but underneath that, there's still the wild. And the wild is used visually in conjunction with the African wild. So that's why it's African music and uh, African animals. And obviously she's from Africa or lived in Africa at least for a long time. So um, so I think that's what I would say more than anything. It's not, it's not that... That they're perfectly clean. It's but what the film is maybe exploring is is how it is that our institutions in the West stifle or teach out or or, or eradicate or suppress or whatever um, those natural tendencies, but that they're still there. So that's the only thing I would say in response. Other than that, I I mean, with the bit about like social antagonisms and things like that and searching for it, my only issue is that I think that everything is different and that there's social antagonism everywhere. So it's not like I'm trying to force a reading of social antagonism. I just think that if you look at any social artifact whatsoever, that there are antagonisms embedded in it, everything. Right. And I would agree with that. And I guess my issue is like people seem to just bring up whatever is the fashionable conflict of the time. Yeah. You know, so like... If you wanted to say that it's problematic that uh, they equate, you know, the wild with Africa and civilization with the West, fine. But I could also say that, oh, well, it's problematic that they uh, portray good-looking guys as stupid or that, you know, all the objects of the girl's sure. uh, desire is all good-looking guys. I mean, you know, you can you can just be offended by anything because ideology is everywhere. I mean, literally right. everything is ideology. So I just don't – I I just see a bunch of – it's just fashion to me. Like what you're going to complain about, it's all whatever is most fashionable. Let's complain about that. And that kind of makes me feel gross. Yeah. I mean, it just seems, it just seems like imitation, right? That people are just imitating others. 
Um, so it kind of goes to what we explored in one of our Nolan videos with this idea of mimetic rivalry or the sort of the idea of mimesis is that you desire what you desire and even your desire to be uh, outraged, right? That that desire itself is also something that you are imitating because of the other people that are desiring that same desire. Right. So they're, they're outraged at you know, the gender pay gap. And so that's, and, and I'm going to be outraged at that as well. Not that we shouldn't be outraged at that. That's not the point. But the point is that there does seem to be this sort of mimetic imitative tendency in society that drives a lot of this stuff. Right. And I think the question that we're asking today is what are we imitating? Are we imitating other people's views or are we imitating Russian bots who have <laughs> uh, infiltrated social media and made these fringe ideas I don't know, like, this is totally yeah. off topic, but like, but like, whenever I see someone say something completely asinine on social media, I just tell myself, oh, you know, it's a Russian bot, you know, like, <laughs> just just because I, I can't believe that someone would really think that. So uh, th that's kind of like me in my bubble. I mean, there's a million things that go into this particular right. topic. But I mean, I, I do think that psychologically, there's a thing where when you're a kid, what I, you know, you're going to find issues for your time, you know, no matter if, if you even if you lived in a utopia, you're going to find like, you know, the thing that's wrong about it because, and, and say, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Cause that's kind of a, you know, it's especially starting in the sixties and stuff with the whole, you know, uh, uh, just civil rights movement and, and the anti-war movement and stuff. And now that's kind of like become the, the, what everyone the, 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 the hallmark for, for, for teenage activism, basically, you know, or, young activism. Mm. I wouldn't say just teenage, but you know, so it's like, you know, we got to have a cause. We got to have something, you know, like look what, you know, uh, they've accomplished, you know, they, you know, our, our grandparents, you know, they fucking, uh, ended the Vietnam war, you know, what, what, what the fuck have we done? You know? And so you find, you know, I'm not saying that, that all these issues aren't important. I'm just saying that, that sometimes they get blown out of proportion because you're trying, you know, because I do think that there's a psychological element, like no matter how per perfect everything gets. Yeah, I could talk about this. You're, you're a human and you're going to find something wrong with it. And so, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I could talk about this for hours because I think it's, I I'm not saying it's unique to the film industry and the entertainment industry, but I do think that the entertainment industry has a unique culture around it that that feeds into these things in a very strange way. Uh, but I guess that can be the, yeah. the the topic for a different podcast. <laughs> well, it feeds into them and then it feeds them back to us and it right. reinforces those things, which means that they become more and more entrenched. And that's what you were talking about a minute ago. The ideology is everywhere. And not only is it everywhere, but it's deep. And so as we are consuming constantly all of these ideological um, flows, they, they, they deepen and they entrench themselves in us and we become overdetermined by them. Or th that's a tendency anyway. Not that we absolutely do, but that is a tendency. Cool. Well, we're way over time, so we're going to have to wrap it up right there. Sorry we didn't get to very many mailbag questions, but keep sending them because we will continue to answer them. I want to thank my co-hosts, Ryan and Austin. Thank you so much, guys. Woohoo! Thank Where can you. we and find you on the internet? Other, yeah, if there are any other parliament members or if there are congress members out there that are listening, heed some of our advice and don't be dickbags. Be better people. We like like Casper. Casper's <laughs> hey, a good we, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the Danish parliament is like, but I'm sure Casper is giving them all very good uh, advice. <laughs> That's right. Um, on the internet, uh, I've been telling people to friend me on Facebook. They've been doing that. Um, we've also, uh, yeah, I guess just do that. What about you, Ryan? Um, I started a new uh, uh, short film, like comedy short film page called Ryan's Shorts on YouTube and Facebook. So friend that if you'd like to follow my weekly short films. Austin and to you, baby. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, and you can argue with me about stuff. I like to talk. So come talk with me. You know, one thing no one said in this podcast is, where's my super suit? Why didn't that happen? <laughs> oh, you just <laughs> accomplished it. Thank you, All right. Jared. So thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Later. <laughs>